Uh, lovely to be here with you this morning, and uh, those watching online, thank you for joining us. I wonder how many of you have read the book of Romans in the New Testament. Uh, one scholar said this, Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul, the writer of that letter, is, he's outlining the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for both Jew and Gentile. And then in chapter 12, you get a distinct shift. It's like he's laid all the groundwork, and now he shifts. And in chapter 12, which we're going to look at in a moment, he begins to talk about the practical outworkings of the gospel. What does it mean for a community of people, in this case the church in Rome, but us today as well, what does it mean in practice for us to live out this gospel in community? And so chapter 12 through for the next two and a half chapters, he begins to unpack and explain that. And as we are preparing to come out of lockdown, we're starting today a four-part series on community, asking what does it mean? What does it really mean? What would it look like in practice to be a New Testament, gospel, Jesus-loving community as a church community, but also in the wider context of the community? What would that look like? Well, Romans 12 gives us an answer to that question. You see, the need for community, how, however individualistic our society in the West, certainly in this country, has become, the need for community is still hardwired into the human person. It's hardwired in there because God created us in his image. And part of that means being in community. See, he was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community from all eternity. So in making us in his image, one of the facets of what that means is that we are communal beings. I got an interesting insight into this, I thought, from, uh, from watching a BBC documentary a few years ago. It was called Football Fight Club. Not something I was particularly in favour of. But anyway, Football Fight Club. And it followed these essentially hooligans. They wouldn't want to call themselves hooligans, but basically gangs of young men attached to different football clubs who basically, I'm not sure they're slightest bit bothered in the match, but either before the football match or after the football match, what they're looking for on that particular Saturday is a bust-up. That's all they're interested in. And they want their gang to beat the other gang. And one of the guys in, in the program, which was genuinely fascinating, was a guy called Carl. He was 24. He'd started being part of this, I think it was a Manchester City gang, when he was 16. So he'd been in it for eight years. He was now like the head of that division. And they were discussing at one point that people would say, <laughs> we would say, what's the point of being involved in that? There's no money to be gained. You're only going to get into trouble. The police are after you all the time. There are areas that you've been banned from. Some of them end up in prison. So they're sort of saying, well, people say it's crazy. Here's what Carl said. In the eight years I've been doing it, I've had the best time of my life. If someone said, Carl, swap the, eight, the last eight years for a million pounds, no way. No amount of money would make me change the times I've had with my mates. 
the bond we've got, the buzz we've had together, the memories I've got, everything, all the pain, I've got that forever. Even that situation which we would abhor for its violence, it's, why, why, why do that? There's community. There's a cause that his little community is fighting for. Community is hardwired into all of us. So let's read a few verses from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole passage on this first week of this series from verse 9 down. Community. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Back to verse 9 and the first half of verse 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Now, the, the New Testament, written largely in Greek, the Greek word translated here as love in verse 9 is agape. Now, if you say love in the English language, it could mean almost anything. It could mean right over here, it could mean I love my family. And you'll know what I mean by that. I could say, do you know what? I loved my walk yesterday from Southbourne down to Sandbanks. I did, it was great. Or I might say, oh, I'd love a cup of tea. We don't. <laughs> love can mean any manner of things. But in contrast, New Testament Greek has various words that we translate as love, such as philia, which is a love of brothers or love of friends, storge, which is a family love, or you have eros, which is a sexual love or a physical attraction. And while agape was sort of infrequently used in New Testament times in the ancient world, Christians grabbed hold of this word agape and used it. Frequently, they employed it to speak of God's love for us because that was a different kind of love than the other loves that they had words for. That sacrificial, gracious, unconditional love of God for human beings. And that's really significant here. It's significant for this reason because up to this point in Romans, in this letter, Paul has used the word agape four times, and each time he's used it of God's love for us. But here, in verse 9, he now uses that word for how we are to relate in love 
to each other. It's a really significant shift here. You see, love in the gospel community, love in the church, is not meant to be based simply on niceness or positive human traits. It's meant to be modeled on God's love for us. If you ever want to know what's it meant to be like to love in a church community, it's meant to look like this. It's meant to look like agape. Well, agape is God's love for us. That's the cue. That's the model. That's how we are to be. Paul's described that love in Romans chapter 5. Earlier in this letter, he said, God demonstrates his own love, his agape, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does agape look like? It looks like sacrificial love for the most undeserving. That is the consistent New Testament principle. Even, even to the point of loving our enemies because that scripture tells us is what God has done. He has loved us who were his enemies. That is the standard of love in the gospel community. It's a very, very high standard. Then the rest of verses 9 to 21 defines, if you like, it defines agape in action. What does it look like then? Okay, we know how God's loved us. What does it look like in practice to love one another in similar fashion, especially in the church community? And we're going to start today with three descriptions that Paul quickly gives us in verses 9 to 10a. These three things. It's a love that is sincere. It's a love that hates evil and clings to good. And it's a love that's characterized by family-like Devotion. Let's look at all three of those. Firstly, love must be sincere. It must be authentic. It mustn't be faked. Because faking it, being insincere, can get you, as you may know, into all sorts of weird situations. Uh, one day, an out-of-work mime artist was visiting the zoo where he attempted to earn some money performing to the crowds. He knew there'd be people there. He wanted to earn some money. He was very good. And as soon as he started to have some success, the head zookeeper called him into his office. And the zookeeper explained to the mime artist that Sparky, the zoo's gorilla and most popular attraction, had suddenly died. And the keeper was worried that attendance at the zoo would fall off without him. And he'd been so impressed with the mime artist that he thought, I know what I'll do. Until we can get a new gorilla, I'll get this guy to dress up in a gorilla suit and imitate and impersonate Sparky. Good offer. So he took it. Well, the next morning, he put on the gorilla suit and entered the cage before the crowd arrived. At first, it was a great job, and he was doing so well, he fooled everybody. He could just sleep around most of the day, hang about, do nothing much, occasionally swing on the tires. He loved it. He was drawing bigger crowds than he normally did as a mime artist on the streets. However, eventually the crowds got tired of him, and he was getting bored just swinging on those tires. And he began to notice that people were paying more attention now to the lion in the cage next to him. Not wanting to lose the attention of his audience one day, he climbed on top of his cage and managed to find a gap through and was now hanging over the lion from the top of the lion's cage. Of course, this made the lion furious. 
Well, the crowds loved it all the more. All was going so well. At the end of the day, the zookeeper was thrilled, gave the mime artist a raise for being such a great attraction. It went on for quite some time. The artist kept taunting the lion. The lion kept reacting and responding, of course. The crowds grew larger. His salary kept going up. And then one day, when he was dangling over the lion, he lost his grip and fell. And understandably, the mime artist was absolutely terrified and thought he was just going to be dinner for the lion. The lion gathered itself, prepared to pounce. The mime artist was so scared, he began to run round the cage with the lion close behind him. When no one came to help, the crowds just looked on, absolutely shocked at what was going on. And he started screaming, giving it away, help, help me. But the lion was too quick and pounced. The mime artist found himself on his back, staring up at the lion, just inches away, looking angry, looking hungry. And suddenly the lion whispered, shut up, you idiot. Do you want to get us both fired? (laughs) Faking it can lead you into all sorts of weirdness. The word sincere, love must be sincere. The word sincere in the NIV is a translation of anupokritos, the Greek word. And other translations use different words, as they do, to describe what does that word mean in English. So some say, it says, let love be genuine, or your love must be real. And then you get these, which are closer. These are much better. Another translation says, love from the center of your being. Don't fake it. And even better, let love be without hypocrisy. That last one is better because anupokritos means without hypocritos, without pretense, without acting. You see, in Greek theatre, the hypocrites were the actors. They were playing a part. They weren't being themselves. They were playing and acting a part. Hence, we get our negative word in English, a hypocrite. It was the play actor who projects an image and hides behind his true identity, behind a mask. So actors would cover their faces with masks and play parts, not pretending, of course, to be reality, even allowing the same actor to play multiple roles. So I might, I might for example, want to, uh, you know, try and demonstrate my Remarkable football skills, which are very few and far between, and, uh, you know, just play, play a bit of a part. I'm not being myself. I might, because this is the only other ones I could find, I might want to say, nice to see you, to see you. Oh, golly, okay. <laughs> try this one a bit better. I might, I might, I might want to try and be Daryl Boy. I'm obviously not trying to be myself, but next year, Rodney, we're going to be Millionaires, of course. Paul is saying, no masks in your love. No masks in how you relate together. That is not how we do agape. Love must be without any trace of hypocritical acting. It must be real, authentic, sincere, not a fake. No wearing a mask to create a false impression. Why not? Two very good reasons. Number one is, 
If God's agape is our model for agape, God is never unreal. He never fakes it. His love is genuine, authentic, honest, always be the same. And secondly, because faking it, you know this, we all know this, faking it has no concern for the other person. It simply is concerned about retaining my image, whatever that might be. It's only self-centered and cannot be love. So love must be sincere, not insincere, without hypocrisy. Faking it is the fruit of insecurity and selfishness. I'm looking for a, a kind of praise or sympathy by my actions. And do you know who in the Bible is most spoken of as denouncing hypocrites? It's Jesus. Jesus is most, more than anyone else, spoken of as denouncing hypocrites 18 times, using the same word, 18 times. He speaks against those who are hypocrites. Here's an example. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Same word in the synagogues. Verse 5 of the same chapter. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues and pray and be seen to be something that they're not really. Love must be sincere without hypocrisy. I guess we're all tempted to fake it at times. We're all tempted to be a bit of a hypocrite when it suits us, faking it for our own advantage, hiding the real self and projecting an image that isn't really matching up with reality. At the end, I'm going to give us a chance to respond to that. Love must be sincere. Secondly, love hates which is an interesting two-word statement, isn't it? Love hates. See, Paul's very next word after love must be sincere is this. Hate. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And in many ways, although it might be a bit surprising, in many ways, that is such a good description of agape, of what sincere love is like because of this. See, love hates evil. Love hates evil. Hate here is a really strong word. It means to abhor, to utterly detest, to have a horror at, to shudder at, to run from. Hate. If he's talking about hate, love, why has he introduced hate? Well, let me explain to you. You see, God is love, but he hates evil. He hates evil because of the damage and destruction and death that it brings. And if our agape is modeled on his agape, then our love must similarly have a hatred of evil. So our love is to hate, is to detest what is evil, what damages others we are to run a mile from. You can imagine that in my family situation. I love my wife. I love my three sons. So if I, see, if I were to see evil happening to them, I would hate it. My love isn't just a tepid niceness. It's fierce at times. Yours is too. That which you truly love, you will hate when it is attacked. You can imagine 
that if something were to threaten the health of this church, you would expect the elders of this church to hate that thing. Oh, the elders are meant to be very loving. Yeah, we are meant to be very loving, which means that we will hate evil. And secondly, we'll cling to what is good. The word translated here as cling is a really strong word as well. It means, so if hate means to run from, cling means to run to, to stick to. Think of glue, seriously, think of glue, think of super glue. To stick to, to cling to, to be joined to. The same word is used of marriage when Jesus is answering some critics. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, cling to his wife, the same word. So here's what love looks like. It's sincere. It hates hypocrisy. It runs from hypocrisy. And it hates evil. And it clings to what is good. Think of those people in your life. Do you love them enough to hate what endangers them? and What will damage them? Destroy them? Do you love them enough to cling to and seek their good? And finally... Love is family devotion. It's family devotion. That's what it looks like, like the devotion that a family has. So the NIV translation here says this, be devoted to one another in love. But it's actually really quite weak. It's not a very good, I don't think, translation at all. It should be more like this. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. There's a lot more feeling in that. There's a lot more accuracy to the Greek text there. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. He's twice in that short statement talking about family. This is what it looks like. Family love, brothers. Why does he talk like that? He talks like that for this really, really important reason in the church community. However diverse we are, However many backgrounds we come from, however many different interests we might have, however different our ages might be, and male and female, we are one family because we have one Father. If you're part of this church, let me alert you to a fact you may never have thought of. You've got me for a brother. I don't see many smiles. I know you're wearing your mask, but I can see there's not many eyes creasing at that in a smile. It felt like a bit of a groan in the room as I mentioned that. You didn't realize that when you joined this church, did you? You got me for a brother, and you got him for a brother, and you got her for a sister, and you got him for a brother and her for a sister. That's what it is. With all our diverse backgrounds, we really are family, not like a family. The church is family because we have a common father. Hence, love looks like family devotion. Let me give you an example to finish. One pastor from the United States wrote of this extraordinary example. He said, I had just finished presenting my weekend message like this. And I was standing at the front talking to people. Bear in mind, the context is a huge church of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And a young married couple approached me down the aisle. They placed in my arms a blanketed bundle 
they asked me to pray for their baby. As I asked what the baby's name was, the mother pulled back the blanket from the baby's face. I felt my knees begin to buckle. I thought I was actually going to faint. Had the father not steadied me, I may well have keeled over. In my arms now was the most horribly deformed baby I had ever seen. The whole center of her tiny face was caved in. How she kept breathing, I will never know. All I could say was, oh my, oh my, oh my. Her name is Emily, said the mother. We've been told she has about six weeks to live, added the father. We'd like you to pray that before she dies, she will know and feel our love. Barely able to mouth the words, I whispered, let's pray. Together we prayed for Emily. Oh, did we pray. And as I handed her back to her parents, I asked, is there anything we can do for you? Any way as a church we can serve you during this time? It's such a big church, he wouldn't even have known of this situation. The father responded with words that still amaze me. He said, Bill, we're okay. Really, we are. We've been in a loving small group for years. Our group members knew that this pregnancy had complications. They were there at our house the night we learned the news, and they were at the hospital when Emily was delivered. They helped us absorb the reality of the whole thing. They even cleaned our house and fixed meals when we brought her home. They pray for us constantly. They call us several times every day. They're even helping us plan Emily's funeral. And just then, three other couples came to join and surrounded Emily and her parents. We always attend church together as a group, said one of the group members. And the writer says, it was a picture I will carry with me to the grave. A tight-knit huddle of loving brothers and sisters doing their best to soften one of the cruelest blows life can throw. Where, I wondered, would that family be? Where would they go? How would they handle this heartbreak without the church? Who wouldn't want to be part of a community Something like that. We may have all sorts of flaws. This is a very imperfect church, but this is what agape looks like. This is what family love being real together, hating evil, loving good looks like. I want to say to you this. Don't wait for it. Create it. Don't wait for it to be organized, in your circle of influence, begin to create it. This is what the gospel community looks like. So I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you to possibly respond. In a minute, if, this, if you feel, yes, God's got something for me to do here, I'm going to ask you to stand. Not to point you out or anything like that, but just so you do something. You have to do something when God's spoken to you. I want to ask you this. On the negative side, do you need to stop faking it 
Do you need to take the courage in your hands to be real? You might want to say, well, I tried that once. Well, that got me. God wants to restore your hope in real community today. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you, on the negative side, you need to, I need to stop faking it. I've got to, I've got to stop faking it. It's ridiculous. Well, on the positive side, what's your agape step? Maybe for you, it's re-engaging. Perhaps you haven't been back yet, and that's absolutely fine. Maybe you can't get back yet. Maybe you could get back when church opens up again, and you've been away for ages. Let's gather back. We believe in community. We believe in the people of God together where the Spirit of God is. Maybe for you it's repenting. Saying, God, I have judged that person. I've kept away from that person. And he's saying, love must be sincere. It looks like agape. Or maybe for you it's someone. As I've been speaking, there's someone in your mind. There's something I know I need to do in your mind. Maybe let's just close our eyes and pray. And say... Folks, let's do something about this. <laughs> let's really do something. Holy Spirit, come and help us, please. We pray for a community that looks like what we've been talking about. Well, there's hurts in this room. I ask you, you'll give us courage to take a step over them. Pray for reality to come and hypocrisy to go. My goodness, we know churches are places of hypocrisy and faking it. God, rid it from here, please. Why don't you, if you know there's an action for you to take, some way for you to respond, why don't you just stand where you are and just do some business with God and say to him, this is it. This is where you've spoken to me today. And I appreciate that that might take a huge step of courage in itself but I'm putting it out there and say, let's do something about this. Thank you. Others who know, <clears throat> I know what God's saying to me today. I want to nail this. I want to resolve this. Let's do business with him. If you've stood, please just start talking to him. Start doing some business with him. Receive his forgiveness. Really, receive his forgiveness. And make a decision. Lord, I'm going to re-engage. It's going to be costly. I'm going to, I'm repenting of what I've been. I'm going to this person, whatever it is. Please do some business with God. We're going to sing in a moment. But please make sure before you leave this building that you've done your business. If you want to pray with someone, there'll be someone over here on my left, your right at the front to pray afterwards. Folks, let's not wait for it. Let's create it, a gospel community.